we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. But among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Happy July 4th, everybody. This is your host, Sophia Nelson, and welcome to the Redefining Freedom podcast. Today is a special day here in the United States of America. It is our Independence Day. We are 247 years old. It may seem like a big number, but in the context of the world and Europe and other nations, we're still the baby on the block. Let's talk about freedom. Let's talk about America. Let's talk about the state of American politics, culture, and the 2024 presidential election. On this July 4th, I have some thoughts to share about the Supreme Court's uh, closing rulings on June 30th, the last day of uh, their calendar until October 2023. Let's talk about it. Happy July 4th, everybody. This is Sophia Nelson, and we're back. Boy, do we have a lot to unpack today. I am not going to attempt to get into every case that was decided by the Supreme Court on Friday last, but I did want to weigh in on uh, where I think we are as a nation relative to freedom on our 247th birthday You all know that I uh, renamed this podcast, the Redefining Freedom Podcast, from what was formerly the One America Podcast. And if you've been following me since I published E Pluribus One, Reclaiming Our Founders' Vision for a United America, then you know that I have been talking about this now for about six years. I have been focused on my concerns about our dwindling freedom here in the United States, freedom of speech, freedom of thought, freedom of personal liberty, freedom over our health, our autonomy, particularly as it relates to women. Whether you're pro-life or pro-choice, whether you're Republican or Democrat or independent, whether you are black or white, yellow or red, gay or straight, Hindu or Catholic, Jew or Muslim, we should all have the same basic love, reverence, and desire to protect our freedom. Because if Sophia Nelson isn't free, you aren't free either. And if my neighbor isn't free to go where he or she wants or to read what he or she wants or to think as he or she thinks, then neither am I. So this concept of oneness, this e pluribus unum out of many one is a brilliant concept coined by Charles Thompson in 1780 when he was charged by the Continental Congress to come up with a motto for this new nation, to come up with um, something that would rally these very different 13 colonies formed into one United States of America. So I want to start with freedom because we're losing our grip on freedom. We're yelling, we're screaming, we're divided in a way that I don't believe this country has been divided since probably, and I mean this when I say this, 
before the 1860 election of Abraham Lincoln. No, do I think we're at a point yet where we're going to start shooting at each other and states are going to succeed uh, from the nation as a whole? Probably not, but you have heard talk about it from states like Texas. We are shooting at one another, quite literally shooting at children, shooting at grocery stores, shooting in our places of worship, shooting at concerts, shooting in nightclubs. And I'm not talking about the shooting where the guy comes in and gets into an altercation with another guy and they start fisticuffs and somebody pulls out a gun. I'm talking about mass shootings are a regular thing now that we just kind of shrug our shoulders at. We tweet thoughts and prayers and we keep it moving until it touches someone we love or a community close to us or or our friends are injured or worse. We're not going in the right direction. Now, on the 4th of July, I want to be an optimist. I love America. I think America will survive this very difficult place we find ourselves in. But I think that history is a guide. The past is prologue. And I think that if we study other republics, Rome and other ancient civilizations that tried to set up democracies or if we fast forward even to what's going on in France now who had a revolution not long after we had ours and if you begin to look at what you see going on around the world people are restless people are tired of being oppressed people are tired of being told what to do people are tired of uh, being overburdened by excessive government and the police state and all of that is pretty basic, folks. That's kind of where we've been for hundreds of years. That's how America was formed. But when America was formed, let's get into the Supreme Court. Let's get into these decisions. And I'm going to touch on each one of them briefly. And then uh, once we come back, because it's hard to get people to do anything in the summer, particularly here in Washington, D.C., I'm going to have some experts on. I'm going to get uh, different points of view about uh, these different cases and, and what the Supreme Court is doing now with a new uh, conservative majority. Make no mistake that this court is conservative. Uh, you see some cases where the justices were all aligned. Those were far and few in between. But mostly you saw 6-3 decisions, super majorities as it's called. And we haven't had a court like that in a pretty long time. Usually you have a Sandra Day O'Connor or an Anthony Kennedy, or a Justice Lewis Powell, or you can go back through time. Particularly, let's start with affirmative action. We'll pick up with that because that is uh, something that has been being debated by this court since the 1970s with the, the Bakke versus Regents case in California, where a young white man uh, took his case to the Supreme Court and said he was not able to be admitted to med school, I believe it was, because of uh, lesser qualified minorities and others getting preference over him as a white male. And while the court expressly struck down quotas in that case, the Bakke case, uh, Justice Lewis Powell, who uh, I had the privilege of meeting when I was a first year law student at Washington and Lee University in Virginia. That was his alma mater also. And there's a, a magnificent photo that was captured of us that I have, and I need to get this framed and uh, put up, I've preserved it, uh, that they caught in the local paper of us sitting there and him uh, writing an autograph for me and us having a conversation. And, uh, you know, it was a great moment. But Justice Powell agreeing with the majority that quotas were not permissible in our system. 
but that race certainly could be a factor and should be a factor in universities deciding how they diversify their campuses, uh, look at people's backstory, look at where people come from, what they've overcome, because I think we can all agree that makes for better lawyers. You know, in my profession of the law, uh, African-American attorneys are still less than 5% of attorneys in the United States. Women are now at parity, almost half that number in law schools um, and in the practice of law. When you get to the partner ranks, it thins out a lot. Uh, women probably become about 25% of partners in the big law firms, particularly equity and um you know, people of color, that thing drops to about less than 5%. It drops down to about 1%. So as you begin to look at diversity in action in 2023, and you look at the numbers, folks, the numbers don't lie. And I can't say this strongly enough. Go watch Joy Ann Reed. Some of you don't like her. You think she's too liberal. Okay, but I watch Fox. I'm not a particular fan of Fox, but I tune in regularly because I want to know what conservatives are thinking. I want to know what liberals are thinking. I'm a CNN girl myself. I'm a centrist, always have been, always will be. I'm very uh, conservative on some things when it comes to national defense and and smaller government, lesser government, and I mean that. Some of you don't have a clue because you say you're a conservative, you say you're for small government, but you're really not. Because if you want to tell a woman what to do with her womb and her body, then you are for intrusion of the state on individual liberty. I'll just hold that there and I'll get back to Dobbs in a moment. However, dealing with affirmative action, where I was going with this is that if you really look at where we are in 2023 and you break down the numbers after affirmative action has been in place since Richard Nixon was president. You could go back to John Kennedy and the executive orders where they started in contracting. But when you look at Richard Nixon and you go forward to where um, he was, the father of affirmative action is a man named Art Fletcher. I met Art Fletcher when I was a young woman. African-American, wonderful man, a moderate Republican when there were still many black Republicans. Uh, and he coined that phrase, affirmative action. And uh, he drafted policies to try to ensure that African-Americans uh, getting contracts with the government and otherwise would have a seat at the table. But when you look at the numbers to my fellow citizens who are white, listening, watching, conservatives, the numbers don't lie. You got to stop believing the hype that somehow black people have taken over or are taking your kids spots at colleges or taking the spots in corporate America or the jobs because the numbers tell a story that tell the truth. That's just not true. White women have been the biggest beneficiaries of affirmative action. Hands down, bar none. No one argues that fact. It was all over the media when the Supreme Court did the case with Harvard and UNC Chapel Hill and it was very quiet. You could have heard a pin drop because white women know what I know, what those of us who are African-American know, that they have benefited from affirmative action more than any group, bar none. Black people's numbers in terms of the racial wealth gap, the home ownership gap, the job gap, the leadership gap, the board gap, they're dismal. We're 13, almost 14% of the population. We have been here 
as long as this country was formed in the 1600s, 1619 being the first African slaves coming here into Virginia. And we have been here probably before that. Indigenous people here first, the Dutch through the colonists second, and then slaves right after. So black people have been in this country for 400 plus years. And yet our numbers tell a story that there is racial inequity, that there is still unconscious or conscious bias, choose your word, that legacy is the oldest form of affirmative action in this country. And for the Supreme Court, in great ignorance, in my opinion, to suggest that we are colorblind is utterly preposterous, particularly since five of the six justices that voted in favor of doing away with affirmative action. And by the way, Harvard is private. It's not public. I'll deal with that later. But, you know, five of those six justices are white. They don't have a clue about discrimination. Amy Coney Barrett's a woman, so maybe she knows a little bit about it. But five very wealthy, elite, educated people made a decision for tens of millions of people of color and others that somehow racism was dead and we're now colorblind and we no longer need these tools to help us. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Clarence Thomas, I just won't speak to that. I have nothing I can say about Justice Thomas. I like him personally. I've known him for years. He's always been kind to me and good to me and, and a mentor uh, whenever I've needed anything. And so I will always respect him for that. But we just don't agree on anything philosophically. We are not aligned um, and it's disappointing to me that he continues to make assaults on the very program that helped him to get into law school, get into Mount Holyoke undergrad, uh, become uh, a cabinet official at EEOC and otherwise through the Reagan years and then end up on the court before he was 45. I mean, you can't make this up. He has been honest that he was helped by affirmative action. And yet he dismantles affirmative action. So there's nothing I can say about that. It is what it is. But I think the court's ruling was unfortunate. And I think that it pitted Asian Americans against African Americans and others. They were used by this white conservative guy. Don't remember his name. Don't care to who funded this assault. And when he realized he couldn't do it through white students in the Michigan case where Justice O'Connor was the deciding vote there as well as Kennedy, and they upheld that race is a factor allowed in uh, admissions. In the Gratz case, well, then they moved on to Asians uh, petitioning at Harvard and otherwise, and you see the result. So I think that that was a very badly decided case. But the truth is, affirmative action was never about unqualified black people getting something that white people were entitled to. And you have to really think about that language because if you say well that seat was mine and that was mine and you're unqualified because you got it and I didn't and like Joy Reid I've been the only black woman in a room and I know what real discrimination feels like when a group of white men are looking at me and I wrote about this in the woman code and I'm the new deputy general counsel at a big uh, government contracting firm a defense contractor and 50 white men are looking at me like why are you in this room and why are you even speaking because you shouldn't be talking even though you're more educated than me, more qualified than me to be here, I don't want you here. 
And you will never know what that feels like unless you've walked it. It's, it's a horrible feeling to have your credentials questioned. It's a horrible thing to have everybody assume that somehow you got something that you didn't earn. I will tell you this, any black person that becomes a doctor, a lawyer, a neurosurgeon, a judge, they busted their ass five times harder than everybody else. Because not only did they have to deal with the rigors of the academics that we all dealt with, but they had to deal with the stigma and the stereotypes and the racism and the drama and then suck it up and keep it moving. So please take your colorblindness and go somewhere with it because it's just not reality. It doesn't exist. Now, on to the student loan case. Um, freedom. Listen, you have freedom to contract. You have freedom to get debt. You have freedom to, uh, you know, do whatever you want in this country. To get an education, to not get one. The problem is, again, elites, upper middle class people can send their kids to college, pay off their debt, help them clear their debt when they graduate. Family legacy, family businesses, all those things give people a leg up. Again, the data doesn't lie. Stop dealing in your emotions and your feelings, folks. Folks, if anything's going to undo this country and our freedoms, it's feelings and hurt feelings. And I can't take it and you hurt my feelings and I'm unsafe and I don't like what you said and you're being mean to me. I don't know when we became this country, but I don't like it. Because feelings are not facts. And when you look at the facts, working class kids and middle class kids struggle with their debt for 20, 30 or more years. I'm one of them. I got a good education. I didn't have a lot of debt, but my parents could not pay for my schooling. They could not pay off my loans. They didn't give me the first down payment on my house. They did none of that. I didn't get that. A lot of you didn't get that. And you know what? None of us was entitled to get it, but damn, it sure helps. And I know a whole lot of people who did get it, who were where I started with me and they didn't have that debt and their parents gave them the money or they did whatever or grandma did or whatever, or they had doors open for them. The same jobs, you would discover that you were getting paid maybe $10,000 less as a female attorney, as compared to one of your white male counterparts that didn't go to as good a law school as you did or have as much as you did, but he got paid more anyway because he had a family. This stuff is real. And this stuff has an economic impact on how you handle debt and how you can pay debt off and how you build wealth. So again, to all you conservative Republicans out there who took PPP loans, and then applied because you had to for the loan forgiveness. Members of Congress, loans in the six figures, not 10,000, not 20,000, 80,000, a quarter of a million dollars. Scott Jennings on CNN, a fellow colleague over there, took out a PPP loan, always railing, always running his big mouth on air, talking about racism and affirmative action and no student debt cancellation, but you greedily took a debt cancellation of over six figures that you borrowed, but you didn't feel you had to pay it back. What kind of hypocrisy bullshit are we doing in this country? This is what I'm talking about. Freedom is under assault because what freedom really is, is some of you think you have freedom and the rest of us do not. And that works both on the far left and on the far right. The far left and the far right are breaking this country in two. And I don't know what's going to happen because if we stay like this 
this great republic will not stand. It will implode. Julius Caesar was stabbed in the Senate by men of honor and class and wealth and supposedly guardians of that republic, guardians of that time. And they murdered him in cold blood. His friends stabbed him to death. Do I think we're there? I don't know. I think the way we talk to each other, the way we speak to each other, the hatred we clearly have for one another, the anger, the storming of the Capitol on January 6th was just the tip of the iceberg, I think. The, 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 the fact that Donald Trump is still able to be a serious candidate for president of the United States, he's been indicted now twice, once for handling classified documents in a way that violate our national security, the Records Act, one of the most serious and sacred duties of this country is for a president of the United States to handle documents properly. That's critical. And if he or she cannot do that, we have a problem. And yet tens of millions of people will vote for him again. They don't care. Because they have grievances and they're angry and they like his nasty rhetoric and they like his, his go get them and lock them up and let's kill people and let's take them out. That's how we're talking in our political discourse, folks. That's where we are. So saying debt is your responsibility and you ought to pay back your loans is 100% right. But I think we need to have a fact-based argument about who does what because if I'm 20 right now and I'm thinking about going to college or I'm right out of high school and I come from a working class family or poor family and I know that even to go to a public university now, it's going to cost me at least $25,000 a year for four years. That's $100,000 worth of debt. And then I start adding on interest. And if I want to be a teacher or something, it's only going to pay me fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 a year. How do I have a home? How do I raise a family? How do I do all that? with $100,000 of debt when I begin my life at 23 years of age or 22 years of age. Think about that. You can't. So most people will opt to do something else. So only the elite, only the rich will be able to go to college and forget about a private university or an Ivy. That's off the table for most people. So is that freedom? Is that the kind of America we want where only certain people have? Well, let me tell you what. That's the America we've had for a really long time. Stop being deceived. Go look up the 50 richest families in Forbes. All white. All of them over, you know, 40 plus years of age. The the heiresses that inherited Mars and, and uh, Candy Company and, and Walmart, you know, being the exception. Younger, but none of there's not a person of color on that list. Go back and look at uh, the wealthiest neighborhoods, people that own things in America, the oldest companies, whatever. They're not owned by people of color. So to my white fellow Americans, I have to call you out. You got to stop this. It's gaslighting. You're not under attack. You're not under assault. You're not having things taken away from you. And if you are, it's by your fellow white people, not by people of color. Because the facts tell a story that just says it's not true. Yes, there are Obamas, and yes, there are Oprah, and yes, there's Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan, and yes, there are black people who have wealth, most of them entertainers like Rihanna and Jay-Z and Beyonce. 
They're the exception. They are not the rule. The rest of us don't have that. We're nowhere near that stratosphere. Lastly, I want to talk about the 303 creative case. Uh, the Alliance Defending Freedom took that case. They are an organization I'm very familiar with. Uh, we support them financially in our household, full disclosure. Um, I have attended events with them. Um, I've had an ADF-affiliated counsel working on my case uh, against Christopher Newport University uh, from what happened to me there in the fall of 2021. Um, I think the court made a good ruling in that case. And let me tell you what that case is really about, again, versus the propaganda of what you're hearing that case is about. The case in 303 Creative was not about whether or not this woman who wanted to have a website where she could design wedding websites for anybody that came to her. She is not, nor did she ever, or did she ask the Supreme Court to give her the power or give any of us the power or the authority to discriminate against gay people. That would be immoral, it would be wrong, and it's something I certainly don't support. What she did ask was that as a person of faith, as a person of conscience, let's be honest, if you're a Christian, a Jew, or a Muslim, your faith teaches you, bar none, that marriage is male and female, a man and a woman, and that being homosexual, committing adultery, uh, engaging in fornication, lying, stealing, Pick your quote-unquote sin is sin. Okay, now, I didn't make those rules. She didn't make those rules. As Christians, we accept the gospel as truth. We follow Jesus Christ and his tenets, okay? Muslims follow theirs. Jews follow theirs. The point is, if my faith teaches me I cannot do this because it violates my faith, in America, we have to respect religious liberty. It is one of the core pillars of our founding. It is the cornerstone of the First Amendment. Read Thomas Jefferson's religious liberty writings, the codes, the statutes here in Virginia. They are the basis for what we have in the First Amendment. Read the notes. Read the legislative history. It's important. Madison did a great job incorporating those into the First Amendment. And so... The issue isn't whether or not I can discriminate against gay people. That's wrong. The issue is whether or not I can have a conscientious objection, point of view, faith perspective that says, this is what I hold privately and when I'm in my place of worship publicly, but I don't want to put up a website where I'm supporting two men or two women in marriage and putting out messages about how this is acceptable or whatever. It would violate my faith, right? I would respect a Muslim's faith on any number of issues, just as I want my faith respected. I don't want to violate the tenets of my spirit. That case is about freedom. That case is about the right to have a point of view, a perspective, to say it, to speak it, to live it, to tweet it, to post it, and not have to fear that you will be hauled into court that you will be sued or fired from your job or harassed at your job, attacked, demeaned, humiliated, 
scarred in such a way that you can't get another job because you've been labeled a homophobe, a bigot, a racist, or whatever. Justice Gorsuch did a great job talking about just that, that we don't have the right in this country to label speech we don't like or don't agree with as racist, discriminatory, bigoted, hateful, whatever, and then ruin that person's business, their reputation, their career, and then just move on. That's not freedom. You have a right, as I do, to think, to feel, to express, but we don't have a right to destroy each other, to incite others against one another. That's what that case is about. It is not about allowing anybody to discriminate against our gay brothers and sisters. Again, that would be wrong, and that is not okay. And if your faith tells you that you don't want to make a cake for a black person or a Jewish person or whatever it is, just don't make the cake. I'll go get a cake from somebody else. I'll get a website from somewhere else. I take my money seriously. I'm not going to spend my money with bigots. I'm not going to spend my money with people that don't like people who look like me. Most of the time, I'll never know because most people just take your money and they keep it moving. But in this case where we have a faith issue, again, religious liberty fits into free speech, free thought. It matters. So again, three really compelling cases, all very different, but all the same. Let me wrap with this. Freedom is not free. Today, as we celebrate with our barbecues and our picnics and our fireworks and our red, white, and blue, let us remember that many have come before us and paid with their blood and their sacrifice and their last full measure of devotion for us to be here 247 years later celebrating this birthday. Read Frederick Douglass's What to the Slave is the 4th of July. Read it. In a speech given in 1852, it's powerful in Rochester, New York. Read it. You can Google it. Get it anywhere. Read the Declaration of Independence to your children today. Read it at your party, your picnic, your barbecue. Talk about it. Reach out your hand to people that don't look like you. Invite your neighbors over. I do it all the time. Break bread. Have a glass of wine. Have a beer. Fellowship. Folks, freedom is what makes America the beacon of the world. Religious freedom. Freedom of thought. Freedom of speech. Freedom in our public universities. Academic freedom. Freedom over and the right to make health decisions for ourselves with our God and with our spouse and our family and not the state telling us what we can read, banning books. That's not freedom. That's authoritarianism. That's tyranny. Be clear. Anybody telling you any different has no idea what freedom is all about. We have to redefine freedom because freedom's got to expand. It's got to grow. It can't just be for me and not for thee. Freedom has to be for all of us. 
It has to be an open, growing, thriving, living ideal. And it has to change as America changes. When this country was formed in 1776 on this day, when they wrote that great Declaration of Independence, half the population, especially in the South and Virginia and down, were black slaves. There was no freedom for them. Go back to Frederick Douglass. They weren't even counted as full humans. They were three-fifths of a human. Think about that. You believe that something enshrined in our documents and in our history and in our courts for 200 years and then 100 years to follow of Jim Crow has been abolished in the last 50 years because of affirmative action? Do you actually believe that? Because if you do, I got a bridge in Brooklyn I want to sell you. It's time for us to redefine what freedom means because it has to be for all of us, not just some of us. God bless you on this day. God keep you. God bless the United States of America.